we really want to take a minute to, um, to pause before we even get into the sermon and just begin to honor moms that are here. And you know what? I always, to be honest with you, I always am a little bit, what's the word? Um, concerned. No, there's no jealous. Pretty happy with being a man. But I've, uh, I'm always a little bit concerned because we, we've got ladies in our church that have been unable to have children. And I know that there, there's always a little bit of a pang that goes through them on Mother's Day. I've talked to so many of them. But yet every one of them that I have talked with always consistently says the same thing to me. Pastor Tim, you need to recognize moms because God has given them a gift and they deserve your recognition. So we're going to do that this morning. I want to bring you back a few weeks to the fifth command in this study. Do you remember? This is a series through the Ten Commands. I'm going to take you back to the fifth command. Do you remember what it said? Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. you remember what that word honor means? We looked at it together. It means to highly value, to respect, esteem, to prize fathers and mothers as being gifts from God. So you see your mom... And husbands, you see the wife that is the mother of your children as being a gift from God to you and to your family. And to dishonor parents is to take them lightly, to give them little regard for the importance they have in your lives. I want to encourage all of us, whether you're still young and you're not married and you're honoring your mom, or whether... You're doing that, yet you're also honoring the, the wife that God has given to you who is the mother of your children. I want to encourage you, honor them well, esteem them highly, see them truly as gifts in your lives. You know, there's a lot of mingling of joy and pain in mothering. The Bible talks about that. There's a lot of sorrow that moms go through. And, and listen, if, you, if you're here this morning having any of your children away from the Lord right now. You know what I'm talking about. That is sorrowful. And yet I want to encourage you that God sees your labor. He sees, ladies, the work that you're putting into your family as you're cultivating righteousness in them. And you're planting seeds of the gospel in them. And though imperfect, you're modeling for them a life of a Christian, one who wants to walk with God and who is walking with God more closely. That will result in a harvest of righteousness one day. We trust and we pray. So ladies, don't give up. Endure. Press on. Build your home. Don't be like the moms who tear down their own homes that they're trying to build. Build them in righteousness. So would you stand this morning? Mothers, would you stand before us? And uh, I know it's a bit awkward, but um, you've got many of you have people that have traveled great distances to be here, and they want to be participating in the honoring of you this morning. For those of us who are sitting, would you um, join me as I pray for them? What a privilege I have as being the pastor who prays for you ladies this morning. And I want to pray for you in a way that men and children that we will, we will live out today, and not only today, but as we go throughout the next several weeks. Let's pray. Lord, thank you, Father, for these ladies. Lord, they are so important. And you have given to them in, in many ways a job that is harder than it is for the men and the fathers of the home. Lord, they are literally creating and building the atmosphere of the home, the environment, Lord, 
May it be an atmosphere of grace. Would you pour grace into these moms? And Lord, let it come out in what they say and what they do. Would you pour faith into them so that they will trust you, Father, even when their children are struggling? Would you pour the endurance of Christ into them so that they will be able to persevere and they will make it to the end of their days on earth and be able to look back and say, I have done in the strength of Christ what I needed to do for my family. Lord, give them that confidence. Would you bless them? Lord, smile upon each of these ladies that are standing. Would you bless them with your, with your favor, with your peace? Lord, let them toil. Yes, let them work hard. But Lord, let them rest in your favor. I pray for that. Lord, may their husbands and may us husbands and those of us who are moms are still alive on this earth, may we pour out blessing on them today. And may we affirm them and highly value and see them as gifts from your hand. We love them. God, thank you for them. And we ask that you would bless them in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Well, I hope you have your Bibles with you. You know, it was a little uncomfortable to be Mother's Day preaching a sermon on coveting. But we're doing sermon-based small groups, so I've got to keep in the rhythm of the, the flow here. So Pastor Jason, he came up with an ingenious idea. He said, just, just title it, Don't Covet Your Brother's Mother. Didn't quite have the ring to it that I was looking for, so I, decla- I, I called it Declaring War in Your Heart. And with that, with that intro, let me challenge you for something. You ready? I don't know what you do when you go to church and you listen to a preacher preach. I know what I do. I wander a little bit. I try to keep my mind disciplined. I I try to take notes. I keep looking in the Word. Inevitably, some verse will come up and I'll be like, wow, i got to really read that a little bit more. Then ten minutes later, I come back into the sermon. I do that too. I understand distraction. But I'm going to encourage you to make a decision this morning. Don't walk out the door today the way you walked in. Let's see what God does to reveal to you today steps that he's been speaking to you to take that you've just not quite taken. What I'm really asking is, would you consider prayerfully and deeply committing and joining God's efforts in war? Commit yourself to battling coveting. You see, there's a war that's going on in our hearts, and a lot of us, I don't think a lot of us have yet entered the battle. We know coveting We know coveting occurs, but I'm not sure we're really convinced yet that we've got to fight against coveting, that we've got to really declare war. And that's my aim this morning. So we're going to look at the wide world of coveting, the deep world of coveting, and then we're going to see what the solution is that God has given to us to fight and to battle coveting. What's the wide world of coveting? Well, here's the commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. I hope you got your Bibles open. You won't see this on the screen. The main text is always in your Bible. I want you to bring your Bibles. Here's what it says. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Here's what God says. We are not to covet our neighbor's house, wife, servants, ox, or donkey. And listen, friends, if the verse just stopped right there, many of us might be able to say, finally, a command that I could do. 
I mean, have you really been able to say that yet in these Ten Commandments? That I've got this one down, I don't have a problem with this command. Well, if God might just have stopped after the word donkey, we could have been in the clear, at least some of us. But that's what our flesh does. Listen, you've got the same squirrely flesh that I do. I've been under preaching. I know that when conviction starts, it begins the argument. And it begins the justifying. And it begins the rationalizing. And it begins the blame shifting. I've done all of that. I do all of that. I know how squirrely, how squirming our flesh is. And here's what we do. We take God's laws and reduce it and reduce it and we narrow it and narrow it until finally we can say with some sort of self-assurance, I can do this one. In fact, I'm doing pretty well. But let me read this commandment again and let me supply audaciously maybe some different words. You shall not covet anyone's home. How are you doing on that one? Just a reminder, this is rhetorical. Any spouse other than your own, anyone's job, anyone's workers, anyone's lawn tractor or kitchen gadgets or Lexus or Harley Davidson. You can supply your own words. Don't covet anyone's money, anyone's big green yard, anyone's body anyone's abilities, anyone's children. And just in case your squirming heart is trying to duck underneath conviction right now at this moment, here's what God in his humor does. He throws in a little catch-all right at the end or anything that is your neighbor's. How do you, how do you get out of that one? All he had to say was just don't covet anything, but he gives us some helpful handholds and then he puts the endless, wide bracket around it. You know, Mark Buchanan wrote an article for Christianity Today. Would you listen to this and discipline your mind? Listen to the whole thing that I'm about to read you and see if you see yourself in this. I belong to the cult of the next thing. It's dangerously easy to get enlisted. It happens by default, not by choosing the cult, but by failing to resist it. You see, the cult of the next thing is consumerism, and it's cast in religious terms. It's got its own litany of sacred words. Here they are, more, you deserve it, new, faster, cleaner, brighter. It has its own deep-rooted liturgy, charge it, instant credit, no down payment, deep deferred payment, no interest for three months. It's got its own preachers and evangelists, their pitchmen, celebrity sponsors, and admin It has, of course, its own shrines, which are malls, superstores, club warehouses, and the Internet. It's got its own sacraments, credit and debit cards. It even has its own ecstatic experiences called the spending spree. The cult of the next thing's central message is this. You ready? Crave and spend for the kingdom of stuff is here. How are you doing with that? Now, I'm going wide now because coveting is systemic to all of human nature. There's not one person sitting here that doesn't covet something. 
And whether we call it living the American dream or keeping up with the Joneses, we all covet. And if we don't declare war on it, friends, we're going to be defeated by it. Okay, so that, that might be interesting to start out a sermon with. Okay, we're all caught up in it. All right, we're all guilty. But let's go a little bit deeper. What is coveting and how deep does this go? Well, one person wrote this. If we measure by the outside, the Pharisee looks like a saint. If we survey the inside, the best of saints is worthy of hell. You see, the inside is what it's all about. You've got ten commandments from God called the moral law. And the tenth commandment is the first one that has gone straight to the heart where the action is. All of the rest of them get there. This one goes straight there. But the moral law did something. This is so interesting to me. If you're, if you're a, a fan of history, which I know 2% of you are, this is going to be really interesting. The rest of you just listen and pretend you like it. In the ancient days... All, all societies, listen, there's never been a society that hasn't created some sort of code of conduct, some sort of system of laws. And all ancient societies created systems of laws that would govern behaviors. Now listen, it gets interesting. A few of them, not many, a few of them created codes and laws that governed the words that you could say. Now listen, none of them. None of them, other than God's society of Israel, created a code and a system of laws that govern the thoughts and the attitudes of your heart. See, when you know that, all of a sudden you begin to appreciate how powerful this is. This is unlike any other society's laws. God created laws to govern the moral, ethical living that roots itself in our hearts. It is where the action is, and the Lord says as much. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And you may have all your life had this impression that the Bible just mainly talks about behavior. Friends, it does talk about behavior, but when you put it on a scale next to how often it talks about the heart that springs forth behavior, the two are hardly comparable. God's interested about from the heart. And so all of a sudden we come to the 10th commandment, this idea called coveting, and I'm going to show you from the words of Jesus, it's all about where coveting comes from. It comes from the heart. That's the battleground. If we're going to wage war, you've got to get it on the right battleground, and at the battleground's the heart. Here's what Jesus says, For from within, out of the heart of man comes coveting. So you're a student of the Word. You want to learn. You're here to learn. You're not here to church because you think this is a hip thing to do on a weekend. You're here, I think, and I trust, because you really want to hear from God and learn. You want to become the person God wants. Well, here's what He wants. He wants you to know that coveting comes straight from your heart. The problem's your heart. But what's it mean to covet? I mean, when's the last time that you've Actually use the word covet in language. I think for most of us it's been a long time. It's an archaic term. We don't use it very much in modern language. But here's what it means. It means an intense desire, a hunger, if you want an old word, a hankering for something that you don't have. 
Now listen, that's really interesting. Here's what I just said. It's an intense desire for something you don't have, but there's more to it. Here it is. It's not only something you don't have, it's something somebody else does. Listen, you haven't gotten to the mind of God if all you think of in coveting is an intense desire for something you don't have. It's an intense desire for something you don't have that somebody else does. And it creates and erupts a war in your heart. And this is exactly what you see in the Tenth Commandment's wording. Look at it again. Verse 17. You shall not covet what? Your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, his servants, his ox, his donkey, anything that is your neighbor's. See, coveting is battling against your neighbor because he or she has something you don't have and you want it. Let's enlarge the definition of neighbor for a minute to the way Jesus did. It's anybody that comes into your life. See, coveting causes that disappointment when a co-worker of yours gets a promotion that you didn't get. Or your best friend gets married and you are still single. Or that family goes on that vacation of their dreams and brings back pictures. And all the while, you've got the face plastered with a smile, but inside you're going, I wish I could have gone on that. Why did they get to go and I can't? See, there is no love for your neighbor or for God in coveting. It's squarely a love for ourselves. Coveting is all about loving me more than I love you and God. You know what's interesting? Coveting absolutely destroys the entire moral law. Let me prove it to you. You see, coveting moves me to recruit other gods and idols to give me what I want, breaking the first and second commandments. You see, God's not going to give me that. I've got to have that if I'm going to be happy. So if, in order, since God's not going to give it to me, in order for me to be happy, I've got to go get it myself. And it's this idol. If I just get that, it will bring me joy and satisfaction and peace and serenity in my life. And all of a sudden, first and second commandments are shattered. Coveting moves me to reduce the reputation of God and increase my own reputation. God, it's about me. I want to be satisfied. It's not about your glory. It's about mine. And the third commandment's broken. See, coveting is why I work rather than take a day of rest. I've got to make more money. I'll never get the projects done. I've got to be able to get things finished around the house. And if I don't do it every day, then I'm never going to get things done. And gone is the fourth commandment, the promise that God will provide. Coveting sees parents as obstacles. I don't know why I've got to be back at 11 o'clock. Why can't my curfew be 1 o'clock like everybody else's? And you're an obstacle to my happiness. Everybody else has great and cool parents, but not me. And all of a sudden, the fifth commandment's broken. And coveting moves me to murderous anger because somebody's getting in the way of my happiness. And the sixth command is broken. And coveting quickly justifies the rightness of sexual immorality. It relabels it as a need. I'm a sexual creature. Therefore, it's right what I do. And coveting causes us to see what is 
yours ought to be mine. And if what is yours ought to be mine, then I'm okay in taking it. And all of a sudden, thievery comes in and the Eighth Commandment is broken and coveting rationalizes lying as okay. Why wouldn't it be okay? God loves me. Everything is all about God's love for me. I'm the center of the universe, not God. And if it's all about me, then God wants me to be happy and a lie is justified if it makes me happy. And the Ninth Command is broken. See, friends, the first command is the foundation of the moral law. That is, have no other gods before Jehovah. The tenth command brings out that black, sinful, dark thread that weaves its way through every one of them. It ends with coveting because there's not ever been a sin in all of human history that didn't have coveting coursing through it. And as we look deeply into coveting, we see that the force of deception behind it is the firm belief that what we need to get, or that I need to get what I don't have in order to be happy. Now listen, I struggle like you do. I'm pretty aware that none of us have arrived at perfection. You're certainly not staring at somebody that has. So there is a time, even though I have the better motorcycle, that I hear a Harley and I pray for Randy Wood's death. Okay, I'm just being honest. I've never done that. I just pray that he puts me in his will and so far he won't do it. Coveting courses through all of us. Because it's the firm belief that I can't be happy until I have, and you can fill in the blank, virtually anything will work for coveting. But it doesn't take long for satisfaction to fade away and a new desire for a new thing begins to form and it starts that vicious cycle all over again in, in our hearts. You know, I really learned this the hard way, ironically, when I was a little boy. I'm going to date myself the Atari 5200 just came out. It was the latest and greatest. And my mom and dad were asking me, Tim, what do you want for Christmas? And I said, all I want is the Atari 5200 because my life will be complete. And my father said this, I will never forget. He taught me more in incidental language than he did in any other way. He says, Tim, you will want it, you will get it, and then you will be tired of it. And you will have to get more, and you will have to get more. And I said, Dad, you don't understand. I mean, you are old. You no longer desire anything. I'm young and full of life. This will complete me. I didn't know it was an idol. I didn't know it was a little god in electronic form. But sure enough, they got it for me. I don't know why he got it for me, other than to teach me the lesson. But it wasn't three months until I realized I can't afford any more games for it. I'm stuck with Defenders. And I'm tired of it. I bought one game for it. And I got rid of it within a year. That's the endless cycle. It's like drug addiction. It's the addiction of the soul. And you fill your heart, but the heart leaks. And it's like any drug user who uses his drug has the moment of ecstasy, but then the moment passes and you need another dose. Except just like addictions, coveting always needs a 
more of the drug, more of the product, and just like drugs, it needs harder products. But so far, I've told you this. Coveting is an intense desire for something you don't have that somebody else does with the belief that until you have it, you can't be complete and happy. But there's one more thing, and friends, it's the deepest part of coveting. It is ruthless. It undermines your walk with God, and here it is. A coveting heart does not trust that God will fully satisfy. That's the power of coveting. Friends, we've never coveted when we've not doubted God's providence and goodness to us. And you might not find a clearer explanation of that in Scripture than Jeremiah 2.13. And here's what it says. My people, God says, have committed two evils. Number one, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. That's water that's alive in ancient language. That's spring water. That's what God offers. But number two, they've hewed out cisterns, holding tanks for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You see, in ancient days, and listen, if you go over to the countryside of the Old Testament now, you can still see these bowls, these pits all over the landscape. They're ancient cisterns. What they did was they dug and dug until they dug out a bowl in the ground And then they bricked it and stoned it and then they plastered it all until it could hold water and then they diverted water so that the 50 days, which is their average rainy season, the runoff would go right into those pits and they would have water for their livestock, water for their family, water to mix with wine, water for travelers, which was a custom of manners. But every once in a while, the holding tank began to leak. And it began to to leak All of a sudden, the water would just start to drop right out of the floor of it, and you'd have to keep diverting more water or else take it all out and get down there and fix it again. See, when we covet anything anyone else has that we want and we set our hearts on it and we trail broken commandments in our wake, our hearts have forsaken our God, we are faithless, and because we believe that He's not going to provide for my happiness, so I've got to provide for myself. The solution, friends, is radical. We've seen the wide world. There's none of us that aren't coveters. We've seen the deep world. It's a problem of our hearts, and it's a problem in our worship. We don't trust God. There's got to be a solution that God gives us And we begin to see it as we begin to look at the problem of coveting and how to fix it. You see, when we tell our children not to do something, doesn't it just seem to motivate them to go do it? See, God, our Heavenly Father, tells us that we must not covet anything. And what do our hearts do? Well, if you're honest, like the Apostle Paul was in Romans 7, you'll say this, I would have known what it is, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. You see, here's the, here's the power of the Ten Commandments. It's God flicking on His flashlight 
into your heart so that shadows flee and what was lurking there all the while, sometimes not even in our awareness, is right there in all of its ugliness. It's the power of the Word of God. It's the power of the Ten Commandments. You see, the law, you got to get this. The, right, listen, pound this into your mind like an anchor. The law was not given to show us how good we could be. The law was given to us to show us how good we could never be in our own power. That's the power of the moral law. Don't you walk out of here week after week with conviction? If you're being convicted and you're getting angry that God showed you your sin, you don't understand the beauty and the grace in His law because He's lighting up a light, showing you your sin so that you will do what? Flee to Jesus for grace. See, the Word of God is God's standard of righteousness. You shall not covet anything is the life of Jesus who never coveted anything. He never thought that God was holding out on him. He never wanted something that someone else had so bad that he coveted. He always knew his Father was providing for him exactly what he needed for the greatest satisfaction in life. This is Jesus who held up the law of God perfectly. It's a standard of righteousness. You see, the law of God is powerless, friends, to give us a strength to stop sinning. Well, you might be saying, well, Tim, I don't understand that. I thought David in Psalm 119 talked about the Word of God and it, it holding back sin in my life. It's stopping me from sin. And Well, let me give you an illustration. What's the last time you rode, you drove over the knoll of the road and there is a police car parked facing you what did you do? Immediately took your foot off the gas and hit the brake. That's the power of the Word of God. It makes you see your behavior and take your foot off the brake of unrighteousness and then flee to Jesus for power and forgiveness. See, the good news in the Ten Commandments is this. Jesus Christ can grace us with the strength to live the moral law in obedience. That's the promise. That's the good news of the moral law of God. Now friends, do you really believe what I'm about to tell you? And, and think carefully before you nod either your physical head or the head of your soul. Think carefully. God has never asked you to do what He will not give you the power to obey. Do you really believe that? See, we are people who have been freed from the mastery of sin through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Listen, friends, you don't live. If you've put your faith in Christ, you no longer live in Egypt, the house of sin and slavery. The Pharaoh, Satan, no longer has ownership of you. Jesus died. And the moment He said, it is finished, the power of God rescued us who believe in Him from our old man, burying it under the waters of the Red Sea of the cross of His blood and brought us right into a new man, giving us life that is built on the power of God Himself. And that door cell that locked us into sin before, when you lived in your old nature, that cell door has swung open. But I can tell you, Christian after Christian, who's still sitting in the darkness of that cell thinking they can't get out of it. 
And all the while, Jesus of grace has His hand extended and says, would you just take my hand? Would you just let me walk you out? You don't have to live defeated and coveting. You can wage war in the grace and the power of Christ and you can begin to defeat covetous desires in your heart. But it's a war. I mean, haven't you ever caught the war terminology in Scripture? We wrestle. We fight. We box. We battle. We tear away those things that take us away from Jesus. We put our sinful desires to death. We take captive wrong thinking. All of this is battle terminology because the New Testament and the Old knows we're in a war. Listen, how many of you got out of bed today and made yourselves ready for war and especially war on covenant? Friends, it's the sin, it's the, the thread that laces through every one of your sins you'll ever commit. It's coveting. How many of you got out of bed to declare war on it? I mean, if you were going to war, would you leave your Kevlar vest in your locker? Would you leave your weapon on board the transport helicopter? Would you really walk through enemy territory daydreaming about what it's going to be like when you're out of your tour of duty? Or would you be completely ready, on high alert, with defenses in place and weapons ready? And the only way that we can ever defeat coveting is by declaring war, waging battle, and clinging to the grace of Christ. Let me give you four ways I hope you will begin to see I've got to do immediately. You'll walk out of here determined that by the grace of Jesus Christ, I will do these things and I will win this war with His help on coveting. Number one, battle coveting by fighting for contentment. See, this is, the, this is where the red light, remember that terminology, the red light, you shall not covet, that stoplight, all of a sudden clicks green and it becomes positive. You shall not covet is really the negative form of what God is saying. Be content. And it's a learned discipline. Don't think you're going to wake up tomorrow morning and God's just going to grant you contentment in your life. You've got to fight for it. It's a discipline. Here's what Paul says. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. You see, grace produces obedience which results in contentment. You know, if you were a Buddhist and I was your priest, you know what I would tell you if you want to be content? Here's what I would tell you. This is what they tell them all the time. I would tell you, tear away your desires. Just strip them out of your heart. Stop wanting anything. And the moment you stop wanting anything, you're going to, re you're going to reach the nirvana that you've been hoping for. That's Buddhism. But let me ask you a question, friends. Listen. When are you content and satisfied? Before you eat that wonderful meal or after? See, the problem isn't, the solution isn't rip the desires out of your heart and become an aesthetic. The solution is fill yourself with Christ. Pursue Him. Love Him. Dine, what He says in John 6, on Him, meaning abide with Him. Be with Him. Make Him the center of your life. 
Pursue Him. And you're going to find all of a sudden those rampant desires that you don't, for something you don't have, but somebody else does, built on an untrustworthy notion of God, begin to slip out of your heart. You know, C.S. Lewis was getting at this in his sermon, The Weight of Glory. He wrote, or he said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Friends, I can amen that from my own life. Don't be pleased with the world. It cannot fill you with contentment. You see, a coveting heart, can you try to remember this? A coveting heart is an emaciated heart, starving because it's dining on the world's goods. And a contented heart is one that's full from feasting on God and feasting with God's people, we call that fellowship, and feasting for God's kingdom, we call that laboring for eternity. Listen, if you will love God, love one another in your Christian circle of friends, and labor hard for the kingdom of God, I'm promising you, coveting will slowly begin to wane in your life. But it's not only battle coveting by fighting for contentment. Listen, there's another step. You've got to battle coveting by exposing it. See, a military enemy always has as great as power of fear when it covertly strikes from the shadows. My father was in World War II. He told me one of the scariest, most terrifying things that he experienced over there fighting in the land of Germany were their drone missiles, because their drone missiles, when they were flying, arcing high over the sky, ready to come down on its target, would make this eerie, ear-splitting whine. He said you could hear the whine, but they would be above the clouds, and you wouldn't ever know where the rocket is going to hit, and it always filled us with terror. That's the way Satan works. He operates from the shadows. And if you want to defeat covenant, you've got to expose it. You've got to step into the light. You've got to live in voluntary transparency with a few trusted Christian friends and show them what's in your heart and let them speak into your heart. Now, Some of you might be saying, you know, I am so tired of Tim constantly saying, you've got to find somebody to talk to. I just don't see it biblically. Well, let me show you scripturally a direct relationship between coveting and exposing your heart. Here's what it says in Ephesians 5. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be even named among you as is proper among saints. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, friends, they are kissing cousins, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Walk as children of light. Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness. And here it is, but instead expose them. Listen, you want to be saddled with defeatism the rest of your life? You want to die still being defeated by coveting? Then listen, the easiest way to do it is just keep it to yourself. Let it lurk in the shadows of your heart and don't invite anybody into your life. 
It's not the way God is asking us to live. But there's a third step. We've got a battle coveting, not just by fighting for contentment, not just by exposing it, but by giving extravagantly. See, one who is filled with covetous desires is one whose life revolves around himself. And it's that selfishness that God says will destroy his community and profane his worship. You see, the compass heading in a coveting heart is always aimed right back at the coveter. You want to know the fastest way. Listen, the fastest way to begin defeating coveting is by giving more extravagantly than you ever, ever had before. And you might be saying, well, does that mean i got to give more money? Here's my answer. You know what? Let me invite you to have your quiet time this week with your Bible open and your checkbook opened and your calendar open. All three of them. And as God is speaking His Word into your heart, would you go back over your checkbook and find out, when did I give myself to serve somebody who's in need this last week? I mean, who did I go visit in the hospital? Who do I know is sick? Who did I give that phone call to because I know they're struggling? Who did I give time to? And then take your checkbook and say, you know what, Lord, where, where did I give sacrificially this week? Listen, we're all pretty good at giving out of our abundance. Probably most of us are good at that. But there's more than just giving out of abundance. When's the last time giving hurt? When's the last time you gave and you didn't know how God was going to provide, but you obeyed Him anyways and you gave deeply as God directed? Give yourself a coveting self-exam this week and see how you do in the area of giving. Do you give extravagantly? You see, we enter the battle and we wage war on, co- on, giving, on, on coveting when we give extravagantly with eternity in mind, and here's what Proverbs says, the desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. All day long he craves and craves, that's coveting, but the righteous gives and does not hold back. Can you get clear guidance from Scripture? You want to defeat coveting, then give as the righteous do and don't hold back. There's one more step, and we'll end with this. Battle coveting by practicing true thankfulness. Let me tell you another story that Mark Buchanan gives in that same article. He says, I was in Uganda, Africa, about seven years ago, and every Sunday evening, about a 100 Christians from the neighboring area would gather to worship, and they met under a tin roof lean-to that was set at the edge of a cornfield, and they sat, when they did sit, on rough wood benches. The floor was dirt. Some of the guitars didn't have all the strings, but man, they could worship. And one Sunday evening, the pastor asked if anyone had anything to share, and a tall, willowy woman came to the front. She was plain-featured, but she was beautiful. And she said, Oh, brothers and sisters, I love Jesus so much. And the congregation shouted back, Tell us, sister, Tell us. And she says, oh, I love him so much, I don't know where to begin to tell you how good he is. Well, begin right there, sister. Begin right there, they shouted. And she did. She said, he is so good to me. 
I praise Him all the time for how good He is to me. For three months, I prayed to the Lord for shoes. And look, and with that, she cocks her leg up so that we could see one of her feet and one very ordinary shoe covered it. He gave me shoes. Hallelujah. He is so good. And the Ugandans clapped and they yelled and they shouted hallelujah. I didn't. Buchanan says, I was devastated. I sat, I sat there hollowed out, hammered down. In all my life, I had not once prayed for shoes. And in all my life, I had not once thanked God for the many, many shoes I had. You want to wage war on coveting? Are you no longer content to just sit back on the, high, on the sidelines and let the war win in your heart? Then you've got to get into it and you've got to fight for contentment. You've got to expose coveting in your heart to the light of truth. You've got to battle it by giving extravagant measures of time and money to those in need. And you've got to practice thankfulness. And big and little. Friends, we live in a land of plenty, but the land of plenty does not have to live in us. Amen? You ready to fight? Would you close your eyes for honesty's sake? I just want you to not be distracted. If you have realized and heard God speaking to you that you are a coveter, and you're not fighting it. And you're not upholding the Tenth Commandment. Would you be honest and slip your hand straight up in the air? Go ahead, keep them up. I'm waiting for others. I know there's more in here. I'm sure of it. Has God been speaking to you and has He been showing you this? I'm going to ask you to do one more thing. Would you stand right where you are? I know that takes courage. Don't worry about what people think around you. That's one form of coveting, by the way. Your reputation. Just stand right where you are. doesn't matter if people think you're a godly man or woman or not. We all struggle with this. I'm standing with you. Let me pray for you, but I'm going to give you 30 seconds to just confess this to the Lord and confess that you're ready to enter the battle. You will fight for contentment. You will expose this to somebody. You will learn to be thankful in the big and in the little things that God has done. And you will give extravagant time and monies to those in need. That's what you're committing to. So I'm going to give you 30 seconds and then I'll pray for you. Lord, we want to be Your people. We want to live the way the redeemed people of God ought to live. And Your commandments have shown us how to do that. And they've shown us one after another, Lord, that we cannot do this in our own power. We can only live these out in the power that Jesus Christ supplies. Lord, I pray that we would cling to Your cross, that we would 
abide in you, and Lord, that you will produce fruit in a harvest of righteousness, and one of those fruit would be contentment. Lord, that you will help us to battle and wage war and mean it and sustain the fighting against coveting. That, Lord, we would find ourselves able to be content and say no to the whispery seduction of the world. And, Lord, that we would be brave enough to expose what's in our hearts to somebody around us that can pray for us and come alongside us. That we will give. We won't be takers anymore. We will give extravagantly. And, Lord, we will pursue it to the end of our lives. Lord, I pray that you will help us to have victory in this, that we will learn to be thankful in the big and little things that you have given to us. Lord, help us to defeat this. Give us strength. And in your name we pray. Amen.